0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week my guest is Dan Hicks, the engineer who has been working on Privateers second generation 141 and 161 for the last three years now, and Dan and I went on a ride a few weeks ago and then sat down for what turned into a very deep dive on the design of the new 141 and 161 and just about bike design in general. And this is one of my favorite conversations that I've had on here in a while, because Dan, as you will see, is especially good at talking through his thought process on the design of the bikes and just approaching bike design with an open mind and a bit of perspective on trying new and interesting ideas that aren't necessarily commonplace in some cases. And he also talks about it really well, too. So this is a super interesting one. There's a lot in here, and you'll both learn quite a bit about the bikes themselves, but also just get a really good rundown from Dan on How he's approached the design and how he thinks about designing things more broadly. So, hope you'll enjoy. I sure did. But before we get into it, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to check out our Blister Plus membership, which includes a ton of great benefits, including some really good discounts on a whole lot of gear, including wheels and components from we are one and a bunch more and also the ability to fire off an email and get our feedback on your next purchase upgrade your suspension setup whatever it is that you might need help with so check that out at the link in the show notes and with that let's get right to my conversation with dan hicks of privateer sweet well dan great to sit down and chat about what's going on at Privateer, just been out for a bit of a ride and uh, well, I've had a bit of a look at the new bikes, have you give us the rundown on them here. So to kick that off, I guess, it'd be good just to have you introduce yourself a little bit. Who are you? What do you do
1: for Privateer? Oh, I should give myself a big job title at this point, shouldn't I? Um, No, hi, I'm Dan, I am the engineer for Privateer Bikes, Uh, started working for Privateer back in 2019. And for the last sort of three years, I've been chipping away at what we're calling the Gen 2 bikes, the kind of the next step in the company, kind of growing things, getting a bit more serious and really into the weeds of what we want to achieve with things.
0: Yeah, we've been having a lengthy chat about a lot of it over ride for the last bit, but uh, kind of ready to, well, put it to recording and relay some of that to some other folks. So... I guess just first thing would be, I mean, people are probably a bit familiar with the original lineup, we'll say, the 141 and 161, and then E-161 as of a little bit more recently. Uh, Where are things going for these Gen 2 bikes and kind of just the broad strokes of the lineup to start?
1: Yeah, sweet. Um, So yeah, I guess from the start we kind of, we came, uh, well as a brand we were kind of formed with the idea of the EWS was kicking off, everybody was taking trail bike racing really serious Um, and there seemed to be a huge gap between um, high performance kit ended up being really high cost and we kind of didn't really see why it needed to be that way. So we're um, co-owner under the same umbrella uh, as the rider firm, which is Hunt Wheels. And they've taken a sort of similar approach of like all the performance with as little of the cost as we can in things. And we kind of took that and thought like, what was what we wanted? What, what do we want out of an enduro race bike? And that's what the uh, 161 came to be. Um, we put a few things on there that kind of seemed a little haywire at the time. We had an 80 degree seat angle. But that was one of those things that for years, um, you had the likes of Chris Porter and other riders slamming saddles forwards in rails, tipping them at obscene angles, just doing what seemed like a normal thing was to put an 80 degree seat angle on the bike for the intended purpose of this. So, yeah, we we launched those bikes. Um, We, yeah, Sam Megan at the time spent heaps of time thinking about the geometry, making sure that those bikes were really well considered in terms of, their ratios and the handling and the performance that we were getting off of them. We launched the bikes and they seemed to be pretty well reviewed. We were pretty stoked on that. So everyone kind of thought what we thought about them, that they go like, uh, I'm struggling not to swear anything, go like shit off a shovel. Um, So (laughs) yeah, that was meant. The trouble with making a bike that was so capable was it was a bit of a sledgehammer to crack a nut with the rest of the range. So for most of our trail riding, we wanted something that was a little bit more kind of appropriate for that. Like if we're not doing the 10 minute stages in the Alps that those races are doing, we can we want something that's fun to ride. So the 141 kind of crept out of that um, and that's a shorter travel bike, but all the same design intentions. We wanted something super robust, great geometry. Um we do, we'll get into it with the new bikes in more detail, but size-specific rear ends for the bikes, steep seat angles, a great suspension platform, Um, just in a shorter travel package that means your bike's more lively on trails that you ride kind of Monday to Friday. Um, and yeah, again, people seem pretty stoked on the bike. We were really happy with it. Uh, it was good to see that come out. We've then, nat- I guess the natural progression is then, um, and it kind of came initially from our enduro riders, as they wanted the e-bike training tool for, uh, I don't know, just cracking out the miles, getting that stuff done. So we wanted to design an e-bike that was as close in handling as we could to the 161 we really liked how that bike rode we liked how their suspension worked but when you stick six kilos of motor and battery and things if you just use the same geometry and the same approach it's not gonna do the same thing so we changed a few bits in that bike Um, we went for the mullet back wheel um, because we can then put uh, the same length chain stays as the 161 on with the 29 inch back wheel with an e-bike motor in there 465 mil stays on the smallest size. I mean, uh, we got one of those prototype bikes and I was riding it around for a bit and that thing was really good fun. Like you could, it was like a hill climb motorbike, like you could ride up anything. Um, and actually in real tight corners, you were stood up like a, a mogul skier on the bike. You were balanced between the front and the back wheel. So you just put next to no weight through your hands and it just felt like you could rip really tight corners we kind of got some of those prototypes as we were going into lockdown and in brighton a few friends of mine um, we built like five really tight s-ben corners and we just used to spend a bit of time sessioning them um and you just think like right you take this absolute barge of an e-bike it's big and heavy with massive chain stays. there's no way that's going to go around those corners and by far the most fun bike to rip around those so started opening up a bit of a can of worms for us about longer chain stays and really figuring out that front wheel from front to rear balancing bikes and maybe not getting scared of some of the bigger numbers at the back ends of bikes um so yeah the e161 came about we'll i'm just sure at this by the time this comes out there'll be plenty of kind of media about it but yeah we were stoked on that bike um people seem to be loving it so yeah really happy with that um the project that I kind of came into the company to go full bore on was the Gen 2 bikes. We've, we'd had a bunch of success with the 161 and the 141. We were confident we were onto a good thing with the E161, but it's then the like, where do you go with this? Um, so started not from scratch, but building on the good platform that we had thinking like, what had we done? Well, what did we like and what did we want to change in the bikes? Like pretty simple product development process. So we were really happy with the geometry of the bikes. We felt like Sam agonized over the ratios front to back. He spent a lot of time kind of figuring that out. Um, and we were really happy with how the bikes ride the balance that they felt and that the balance was right for each rider on each size bike. So there wasn't a... The reason we do uh, the proportional length rear ends is that no matter what height you are, if you buy a bike from us, we we want the bike to ride for you the same way as it does for us. If I took say a 435 chain stay on a bike with a 510 reach and scaled that down to my size, well, I'd have to run like a 22 inch back wheel for that bike, the rear center to stay in in shape. that. There. And there's no way I could do that. It'd be the most nervous bike. So the same is true when you go the other way. Like we're making super nervous bikes for bigger riders. Um, the analogy I'd use is like it's a bit like scaling. It's called grading in clothing, but it's like uh, how clothes get bigger as you get bigger. If you buy a size 12 shoe, you don't just make it longer. Tall people don't just have long feet. They have wide feet, deeper feet. The insoles in a different place. They need a stiffer insert in the shoe because on average they're way more. And there's a whole bunch of things that we want to think about when we change the size of a bike, not just how can we knock this out at low cost, basically.
0: The version of that analogy that I've used a bunch before in talking about this is just that if you're looking at a given model of ski, Comes in a bunch of different lengths, and they're not just adding that length in front of the binding mount area. You're scaling the ski proportionally. It's not, you're not just making the front bigger to make it longer and call that a day. And it's kind of the same thing with bikes. We've been doing a single chainstay length for a long time. I and mean, of course, you're far from alone in doing proportional chainstays at this stage, but it's something that's become commonplace only comparatively recently sort of in the time scale of mountain bikes being a thing and certainly makes good sense it's also kind of a tricky thing to test because you can't have a given person ride oh know. I can't
1: just turn a dial and be six foot tall yeah. if I could I'd have done that years ago like <laughs> but yeah um, so you end up people get wedded to their favorite number and they're like this this is the number I like in things. And when you're designing bikes, it's really important to take your ego out of it, basically. And it's not, what do I like in this? It's how does this work as part of the system? Um, And I don't know, I come from not working within the bike industry. I've done a load of different sort of R&D jobs across the board and things. It gives you quite a good approach on, like, what's the problem? What's a good solution to this? What are the important things? It's kind of difficult when you're passionate about something and you've spent years doing things to get out of the fog almost, I think sometimes of of doing that. So it's been at least good for me to come at it with a, a, a fresh pair of eyes and why don't we stick these? Like Especially when we're looking at the large sizes, 5'10", 5'15", reach. When I start putting on a geometry chart, 460, 465 chainstay lengths, you can see product managers' eyes spinning like, oh, that's that's massive. We like, But that's don't pick your favorite number. Look at that's part of the system and what we're trying to achieve with the performance of this thing. Um, and yeah, privateer are frothing for this sort of stuff. So it's been, been working for a company that... You say like, well, I know this, I think this makes sense. This works. This is how it can line up. And it's just nods like, yeah, let's do it. Like that'd be cool. Rather than really having to fight some of that approach. Like, um, so, uh, I, don't know, I started off talking about the E one six one and got very distracted into this is going to be the theme of the evening. David. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, anyway, yeah, we changed a bunch of stuff on that really, really psyched with that bike. And then we started thinking about what do we do coming into the new bikes? We were real happy with the geometry of the bikes, happy with a good starting point on them. But some of that mucking about with the long chainstays on the e-bike and being able to change that meant that we ended up looking at what are the longer chain stay lengths going to do for riders. Um, And there's a noticeable difference in the performance of a bike when you lengthen the rear centre and don't change the front centre. And our approach at Privateer isn't that we're telling the rider how they should have their bike set up. We kind of want to put the dart in the board and give you the options to go either way. So we on on the new Gen 2 bikes, we've got a 10mm adjustment in the chainstay. Um, we want to make adjustments where there's a, a noticeable change in the performance of something. It's a little bit like when you're setting your suspension up. If you've got 20 clicks, what's the difference between 15 and 16? like arguably some pe- like as soon as we say it's 10 mil adjustment you'll get people saying well i want the five mil adjustment position but the point of it being 10 mil and the point of it being a noticeable change is that it's a discernible change in the performance of that bike for moving that position um and we've kept the change day in the short position the change stay lengths are basically the same as the gen one bikes but we've done like a it's a plus 10 mil on every bike size Because on flatter trails, on things where you're not needing to be surprised by corners as much, if you've got those sort of like janky Italian enduro stages where you're just T-boning dusty corners, a shorter chainstay can be nicer to get round those. But for most riding these days, there is a corner, there is a line round it. Especially on flatter trails, lengthening that back end just through your feet puts the weight on the front of the bike and it takes the fatigue out of the hands um so you can run a higher bar you can stand yourself up there's a there's a lot of benefits to us in doing that um and how we've designed it into the bikes it's well, the the brake mount is reversible so you need no extra parts you so just two five mil allen keys you can turn that brake mount around and then you just take the rear axle out and stick it in the long position happy days um all of the adjustments we've put into this bike we want people to play with like if you have to have separate axles or carry a bag of spares, you're just going to ride your bike as it is. And I'm the same. I I don't really want to be meddling with things all the time, but making those adjustments in the bike and having them there means that you get to experiment with this stuff. Well, how does this change what I'm feeling? What do I like in, in the setup? So yeah, we, we kept the geometry, oh, a bit of another bit of a detour into chainstay lengths, but we pretty much kept the geometry from the old bikes, um, yeah we were super happy with that, the steep seat angles we're kind of buzzing on, like there's a arguably a bit of a comment about like the steep seat angles on flatter trails end up putting a bit more fatigue on your hands because you are just perched that bit higher. Um, but because we don't have sh- very short chain stays on the bike um, and you can go longer than that it allows most riders to run a stack height that is much more generous so i ride a p1 i've got probably 10 miller spacers under the stem and at least a 30 mil rise bar on all of my bikes um it goes uh that to me puts you in that mogul skier position like You watch those guys clatter through moguls, and that's probably some of the most aggressive leg movements you'll get. But their hands aren't touching anything. They're balanced. They're in the middle of the skis. They've got poison. You're using these great big muscles in your legs to deal with all of that. Watch. There's some great riders at the minute, but one of the reasons Loic Bruni looks fantastic on a bike is because he's so leg-driven on... Yeah. Um, you see it in Danny Hart, Lucas Shaw, Troy Brosnan's, like. There's some real technical wizards and you just watch their like belly button up and there's nothing going on. Like, um, So that's the approach that we're trying to get into. When we talk about the balance in the bike, we want you to feel like you sit in the bike and that you're comfortable. And not no matter what's thrown at you, but you don't have to be moving in extremes when you encounter different terrain right, I don't need to be scraping off the back or leaning right over the front depending on how steep this bit of trail is. I've got a nice operating range I can move forwards or back in to slightly adjust that. I need slightly more front wheel, I need slightly less back wheel. Um, so yeah, we've kept the steep, steep seat angles on it. Um, it comes back into this approach of, like, pick your favourite number. Head angles is another particular favourite of people's. But A head angle combined with the fork axle to crown, the sag that you run, the length of the head tube, the reach, the stack, um, your bar stem, rises under the stem, bar roll, that's dictating the rider's position on the front of the bike. If we rate the head tube angle out two degrees, well, there's actually a whole bunch of other stuff we think about that goes behind that, that you then, well, if I've made the front centre that much longer, well, I then need to make the back of the bike to balance it out in the same sort of way and it's always up for debate different riders prefer different things but there's a balance between these things we were super happy with the gen one bikes with the balance front to rear so we didn't want to change that we didn't feel like we needed slack our head angles nobody in the team was asking for it the bikes were super capable so i say if it isn't broke don't fix it but why why mess with a good thing um We spent, I said we, uh, I spent most of my time kind of fixated around kinematics of the new bikes. Um, I guess we typically in bikes, you talk about three things, this leverage rate, anti-squat and anti-rise. So I'll kind of, I'll address them in that order. Um, The leverage rate of the Gen 1 bikes was ever so slightly regressive at the start of the curve and then progressive from there, but low overall progression numbers that meant that if we wanted the bottom out resistance for when you're absolutely trucking it makes the bike not very sensitive at the top and the regressive part of the curve doesn't help with that um or conversely if you wanted the bike sensitive at the top you end up not being able to bottom the bike out very hard or kind of struggling on, you're all right get out (laughs) a big cough coming um so i kind of uh not starting from scratch but Thinking about it from a a more kind of pragmatic viewpoint, there was three points that I wanted to connect in the leverage curve of the bike. We, at the start of travel, we want the minimum breakaway force for that, or we want the most mechanical advantage over the shock. Big, like, air shocks will come on all of the bikes from stock. It's significantly easier for people to tune spring rates to themselves their lighter tip like this new float x that we've been running on the bikes like super consistent when it gets hot really easy to get to a really good place with that shock but there's the inherent problem with the stiction in the seals and getting things going so we want high initial leverage rate to get over the stiction of the shock and so that when you touch a bump it's like a feather lifting off of it most of these bikes all sag under their own weight. Or like if you rest your hand on the saddle, you've got that. There was videos back in the day of Geordie with the Fox Lads and Rat Boy going absolutely mental about, oh, look at that, it's soft. Um, but yeah, we, so that, that's one of the things we've gone for is that real low, high leverage rate at the start, low breakaway force, it gets the shock moving. The other benefit of that is the difference between the damping adjustments in your shock in compression. Is biggest at the highest shaft speeds of the shock. So, if you if you look at a damping graph, oh, I try I struggle without a piece of paper. If you look at a damping graph, basically you get uh, a hula hoop. You get a hoop that goes in a circle. It's, as you change the compression and the rebound damping characteristics, it stretches that hoop in the y-axis. The biggest difference between those two curves is typically at the maximum shaft speed, so at the x is zero position at, the, at those points. Um, as you start getting towards the lower shaft speeds on that graph, all of the lines converge because damping is proportional to the speed that you're moving, so your adjustment is making less difference at that point. So. By having that high initial leverage rate, essentially, we get the shock moving from static to a reasonable speed earlier in the stroke of the bike. Um, So sag on the shaft of the Gen 2 bikes is 25% on the shaft to give you 30% sag at the rear wheel. So we effectively sit the bike 5% higher in its active travel. And at that point, when you've reached sag at an impact, the shock is moving at a speed at which the Uh, difference between the damping curves is significant so there's a couple of benefits of that high initial leverage rate to us and that's why we've gone that way with it second point we're trying to connect is um, supporting the rider at SAG you weigh whatever you weigh when you sit on the bike you want to use up a certain amount of travel of the bike it's a number that needs a little bit of prodding when it comes to it. its a good starting point at 30 percent but ultimately it's not the gospel that it seems to be here because it's something that largely comes from a motocross or a motorsport approach where you're tuning the ride height of the vehicle by what does this sag under its own way, weight sorry um, it's, in, it's a good starting point it is roughly what we design it round at 30 percent at the wheel But that's what we're trying to do, just support the rider weight in the middle of that stroke. And then at the end of the stroke, um, we call it bottom-out resistance, basically. We want to match the strength of the rider at the end of the stroke. So I would find this easier to explain by the couple of examples. If you are stronger than your bike is, if your bike can push you back more than you can push down into it, when you get towards the bottom of travel, your legs will buckle because the bike will start to push you back more than you can push into it. That's not very nice if you've ever done it. Um, it's the feeling that you can get a lot of time if you run a heap of volume spacers in a large volume air can shock because they just hit the brick wall at the end of the progression and all of a sudden your toes are on your shin and <laughs> you're crying. Like. Um the other one for that is if you are stronger than the bike, you can push through all of the suspension travel. And that's when you start feeling that beautiful, really hard, horrible bottom out knock, or like you see bottom like G8 projects that Vital do, like just people stapled across their bike, it's because they're stronger than the bike is. So we're trying to at bottom out, what I want to try and do in a bike is make the bike a little bit stronger than the rider is um i kind of call it your own shit travel but it's like when when you've got something wrong you've got a little bit extra for that like massive huck into something when you've done something wrong you just need an extra bit of give but we're trying to get the bike to be ever so slightly stronger than the rider that that defines kind of the three points that we want to achieve in the suspension um With the Gen 2 bikes, quite often in bikes, pardon me, you'll hear it quoted as like a leverage rate Um, and I think it's a little deceiving sometimes because you're stacking what is quite a complicated air spring typically on top of this, which has its own force curve. And what you're feeling is not the effects of the leverage rate. What you're feeling is the effects of the force at the rear wheel.
0: Right. Which is sort of a combined factor of leverage rate plus whatever it is that the shock is doing.
1: When you change the damping of a shock, you're not changing the leverage rate, but it feels different at the back wheel. So it made a lot of sense to me to instead of defining the leverage curve and working out what happened at the back wheel what do we want at the back wheel and work towards a shock on that so we've partnered really closely with Fox on these new bikes um, the team that they've got in Europe have been answering anything I can throw out i really helping us out with custom tunes and what we can do in these shocks um, but we Really, kind of designed from a process of like what does the force at the back wheel look like and how do we get that to be linearly progressive? I'll kind of bump back to that, but how do we get that to be a nice linear progression and then what to do that with which shock do we need in a leverage rate? So we've ended up with a leverage rate. I'm going to hesitate to quote the numbers because there's been a few flying around between the ears today. But we've got very high progression in these bikes, um, especially before SAG to get the shock moving. But it's in the region of sort of 25-30% from SAG to bottom out on the 141 and the 161, so the Gen 2, because that to us ties those two points together. Um, Linear progression is... I don't know if it uh, translated earlier my example of throwing balls at you, but the way I try and explain it would be um, if we were stood in a sports hall or a room and I threw a tennis ball at you and flicked the light off. You can pretty accurately predict your brain's great at making a linear calculation as to when that ball at set speed is going to hit me um if i took a badminton shuttlecock and hit that at you and flip the light off because it's slowing down at some order equations worth of speed it's not very easy to predict when that's going to hit you and with a load of practice you can get really good at it but it's why it's way easier to play squash than it is to play badminton because the ball does a normal thing um you could think about it in another way of like if you're stood one side of a valley and you look at a car drive into a tunnel at a constant speed you can really confidently go like there that's when the car's going to come out the tunnel the other end if the car's accelerating and braking, even if it's like sinusoidal and you know the pattern that it's accelerating and braking on you ask our little monkey brains to do that calculation and we're terrible at it so when we're riding mountain bikes, I don't know about you, but I'm concentrating on not dying most of the time. Like, don't don't ride into that. Don't muck that up. So having something that's incredibly easy to predict or that is a very natural response, like what comes naturally to you, that's why I want a linear response to that. In And we'll talk about this through anti-squat and anti-rise as well. But that's why I chase linear responses in things, because it's not necessarily the best or better it's just incredibly predictable and when a rider is such a significant part of the machine in mountain biking like we're four five six seven eight times the weight of the bike actually what we do to the machine is really important not necessarily what the machine's doing it to itself so if that gives us the confidence to do something that is mega to me
0: yeah and i think that ties back really well into Something you said earlier that I kind of want to, I guess, rehighlight here that have conversations with people pretty often talking about suspension setup, say, and, well, it'll be like, like, well, I'm running 30% sag, so that's dialed, and, but the bike's doing this out of the other that I don't like. And, you know, my response is like, you know, there are often very good reasons to be doing, you know, we have this idea of 30% sag as being the default normal Objectively correct thing or whatever. And it, that's just not really how things work. It's that, I mean, for one, you're measuring your sag at some fairly arbitrary body position. And on it's one thing to be doing that in a car where, you know, like I said, you're setting ride height and the driver's not moving themselves around within the car and changing the way it's balanced. But on a bike, you are by far the bigger percentage of the total weight of the thing and moving around very dramatically on top of the bike. And so it's not like the position that you've chosen to measure your 30% sag at is reflective of, you know, a huge percentage of the time that you're riding the thing. Not to mention that there's nothing inherently magic about that 30% number either. And just having people kind of,
1: get into this point that like great starting point but it's it's the starting point and you can pick it apart from there um yeah like i'll give um steve at vorsprung a load of credit for this like that little youtube series he did mint for explaining some of these things but One of the ones he picked up on was a lot of the time running, say, a normal sag number in a bike. If you feel like your arms or legs are moving too much, you might just have too much suspension travel. You just physically don't want your arms to move eight inches in an impact. So you might feel more comfortable riding a shorter travel bike because then your arms like it it then feeds into, I guess, a bit of a discussion about, well, should suspension travel be proportional to your range of travel? If I'm on a 180 mil bike and I'm at SAG and I need to pump it to the bottom of suspension, I have to go through a much larger range of leg motion than someone who's six foot four to do the same thing. So my ability to ride that bike dynamically, like a good rider should, is way lower. You end up seeing, um, like Roger Vieira is a bad example, but like shorter riders on long travel bikes, they end up in a much more passive riding position. Or they have to be incredibly like watch Troy Brosnan ride and every time it looks like he's on a line change, it's a full body cricket jump, like wah wah like everywhere he's going. Whereas conversely you watch the tall like Minar, Coulange, these taller guys, and it's ankle flicks for them on a ten inch travel bike to make the same change. So there's God, oh, you, you could you could spend hours talking through how to set a suspension up, but it's, n- it's not a bad starting point, but one of the examples is like, I don't know anybody who rides a bike on the pointy side of the spectrum who's running more than about 22% sag in a fork. So that slackens your head angle by a certain number of degrees, slackens your seat angle, changes what the bike's doing, changes like there's heaps of things that riders are doing to their bikes to, to get a feeling that they want out of it, not have the number. We got some pretty trick data acquisition stuff, end up throwing it on loads of people's bikes because it's great for me to just get baselines of like, especially uh, being in Squamish riding with really talented rides all the time. They've got their bikes dialed, they're winning races. Well, what's that doing? What's that bike doing type thing? You can just chuck it on, get a couple of kind of readings off things and just see. Um, oh, I lose my train of thought with that. But the, the, yeah, there, there isn't a, a right answer. Quite often you kind of, you get to the bottom of a run or you've done a few test runs with somebody and they're looking at you being like, right, what do I need to change? It's like, well, what didn't you like? Like if it's working for you and you're winning, like, what, why, like I, I can suggest some things, but if you've not got that rider feedback, if you're not calibrated is a horrible phrase, but if you're not used to doing that, I was joking to me earlier about mucking with suspension with people one of the first things i'll do when they're not looking is let a psi or two out their tires and send them off on another lap and the number of people that will come back and be like oh that feels mint that's great and you're like well we're not we can look at so many more things that go into the performance of this bike than just tag or like this this golden number that we have um but yeah that's one one to be said is like uh, probably an interesting one for a podcast but like manufacturing tolerances come into lots of things um, where they put the etching on the sag indications on shocks do you, do you check that that's right before you use that to set your sag up like there have been cases of handlebar manufacturers not putting the center mark in the middle of the handlebars Like, it's not that it's done maliciously or intentionally, but, like, that's a thing. And then because of the variable leverage rate that we have at the back of the bike, if I put 30% sag on the shaft of one of the Gen 2 161s, that's closer to 44% at the back wheel. That puts the bike in a different position, drops the bottom bracket a bunch, like, changes the head angle. Like, it's noticeable that that's a thing so um, I won't wander off and grab it but I'll show you after we've done like we'll we'll launch the bikes with like a little kind of credit card thing that's just got slot cutouts on the side hold that against your shock and that is sag at a certain point because I don't know what you from an engineering background like you watch most people use a ruler or a set of calipers and it's chaos like yeah um, so I'm, I'm lucky I have data acquisition on the bike. So when I set SAG on things, I strap on some very expensive telemetry and I get to ride the bike and see a static and dynamic SAG and I can... But if I had to do it with a ruler like the rest of you heathens, I'd uh, I'd be struggling. Like, So yeah, so the setup is always a starting point. Like you always want to... I say to people when they're describing to me like how, how do you set your bike up I don't need suggestions on what to change I need you to describe to me which bits of track it doesn't work on when the tracks like this and I'm trying to do this I can't get it to do that because there's usually more than one way to skin a cat and it's I don't know I guess it's kind of my job to come up with the ways to skin the cat I just need to know which cat to skin People get fixated on like their, I I, I need to focus on the compression damping of this thing or I need to, it's rebound that's causing this problem. And you're like, well, we could raise your handlebar. We could let tire pressure down. We could change the lacing in your wheel. We could change the pressure in the spring. We could change the progression of it, the damping, oil weight, wheel weight. Like so many things might come into that little thing. So uh, I still don't have a clue most of the time. It's still every time you come at something, you're like, oh, cool. well, that could work differently. But, but for sure, if you're trying to work with a suspension tuner, try and tell them where you think your bike doesn't work. And if you've got a GoPro with a bit of trail where you're like, when I'm riding this bit, it just feels like this, that's worth its weight in gold. Like, um, so, that's a long detour from 30% sag, but um, yeah. So, that was a uh, the one of the big well the probably the biggest change coming into the gen 2 bikes like well at, at this point people have seen pictures of the bikes like it's quite a visibly different layout um, part of the reason for going for that layout was consistency in the kinematic um, talking again about that like linear response to things we were So uh, take the next one next then. So the anti-rise on the Gen 1 bikes was kind of low in the like 40 to 50% range as it swept through travel. And that was, I guess, kind of nice. Like it was active under braking. It meant if you were a bit of a brake dragger, you could still retain some of that. But we found that in combination with the kind of regressive part at the start of the leverage curve, when you were riding through, say, big holes or choppy braking, the wheel would quite readily extend to full travel, and then be hesitant to get back into that travel because the leverage curve was regressive in that first part. So you felt like the wheel was extending, and then as you were kind of chopping into things, ever so slightly a sensation of tipping you out the front door. Um, and it can. We ended up going with a very light compression tune on the shocks to help with that problem. We end up recommending running rebound a little bit slower on the bikes to stop the wheel falling into the holes quite as much, but that was something that we wanted to address on the uh, Gen 2 bikes because we felt that like again we've we've we think we've done a good job of the geometry. We think the suspension is incredibly predictable, consistent. You know where you're at with it. That kind of undermined that breaking really hard and harsh like when you're fully cacking your pants and you're just like right I need to anchor on so the the number in the Gen two bikes um, is in I quote me exactly but like 84 to 85 percent I think um, but it was important to me that it's at that value basically the whole way through the travel. So no matter where you're off the top of the stroke or your deep stroke, you've got this consistent response to what's going on. So even if that's not your favorite number, it always does that. There are other designs of bikes, other layouts and things where the percentage change as you go through the travel is quite drastic. And I take you back to shuttlecocks, like when I'm hurtling at a tree and panicking, it's very easy to learn how this bike brakes and to learn how to get the most out of how to brake on it. If I had a shuttlecock, I've got another thing to think about. In, trails are different every time, conditions are different, tyres are different, all of this sort of stuff. So, um, It's been something that has been one of the big bits of feedback from Fergus Ryan, one of our riders, that he's absolutely like just stoked on. it. It's like, you can just hammer into Chunder, anchor on and, and get out of it. And I guess the kind of design intention at Privateer is more towards that uh, like higher than average skill, kind of trying to rise and push your envelope a little bit on things. So good braking technique is to be on the brakes or off the brakes. And uh, certainly for me, it's highlighted a little bit of back brake dragging I do on things. Um, but with it still being this side of 100%, like you still get plenty of feedback in things like being rattling these bikes in the bike park over the summer, and you can drag brake through all the braking bumps, and you're still getting that nice back wheel flutter, plenty of contact with the ground. Um, they shave speed really nicely. These new bikes. Um, so yeah, that's that kind of kind of gets into that, um, and then the anti-squat, I guess, is the last one. Um, yeah, we we designed that. The first gen 161 to be like super efficient pedaling bike, like that EWS EDR, as it's now called, kind of uses just winch and plummet. Like, they're not doing a lot of technical climbing, it's not trail riding like it is for you and I when we go out. Well, when we went out this morning, um, but that had the downside of when you're riding technical uphills on things, when you're at like that 160%, it's really stiff. So you hit a wet square edge, like a square root or something, and the suspension just stays exactly where it is and you're back to riding a hardtail. So lacked a little bit of traction on some of the more technical climbs. And especially when we were thinking about the 141, that more trail orientated bike, that's where those bikes are fun is being able, we've got the steep seat angles, these bikes pedal really well. It started to kind of highlight that for us, like we could improve the traction on the climbs by not being quite as extreme with the anti-squat numbers. Um, And again, consistency in that. So like we'll publish the graphs of all of these things so you can see them. But the percentage change in anti-squat through the travel, it's less than about 10% in each gear. And the total change between all of the gears is less than about 20%. So it's this big horizontal block across the graph. It, they're all above 100%. It means that no matter what gear you're in, you get the same pedaling performance that you're expecting. So one of the things that kind of became apparent on the Gen 1 bikes is that it drops below 100% when you're below about 7th or 8th gear on the bike. Or when you're past about 50% travel. So if you're in on the trail in that enduro stage, just mashing the pedals deep in the stroke, all of a sudden the bike goes from being supportive and holding you up in things to diving. Um, and that became a uh, something that we knew we could improve. Like we wanted that support so you could get on the gas, not need to use remote lockouts or like flight attendant is mint. But if we don't need to add more expensive suspension to compensate in the bike, then maximum bang minimum buck that's the kind of approach like so kind of agonized over that stuff for a long while kind of batting things around making sure we were happy with it um and yeah i don't know it's just one man's review but i'm pretty stoked on the bikes they've come out uh (laughs) almost exactly like i'd want in the kinematic um i've not yeah i've uh particularly like particularly confidence inspiring it they've Everybody says everybody, their boat feels like it's got more travel than it has, but there's not an end to the travel. Like It's always got a little bit of a, you know, go on. like you, you can, You've you got more in the tank. Um, and then, uh, yeah, living in Squamish, pedal quite a lot, of, like technical climbs, quite a lot of steep stuff, and you can just sit and spin on these bikes. The seat angle you're in a nice position for and that lower anti-squat number, um, yeah, a bit, bit more forgiving over the square edges, a bit more... Bit, more mindless? Less mindless. bit more mindless being able to winch up things.
0: Definitely that was a bit of my experience on the first gen 161 was that, yeah, super efficient, but definitely gave up a bit of traction under power and didn't feel super compliant when you were cranking up something rougher and more technical. And, you know, for, like, as you said, for a lot of winch and plummet up a fire road kind of climbs... That works really well, but it is a trade-off that you're making to that end. And uh, dialing it back just a little bit seems probably sensible.
1: That's one of the nice things about sort of being able to do new versions of things. Like Privateer was a completely new brand, a new product for us, doing something that was a little wayward, um, making such a kind of dedicated bike. Um, we've come at these new range of bikes with like four or five years of having done that having had hundreds of these bikes out there ridden with different people on all sorts of terrain over the world now so it's nice to be able to build that more like full understanding of like how do we keep the attributes of this that we think are mint, and how do we I don't know it's whether it's a good way to say it. Andy Sykes will kill me. Like take if you can minimise the bad things, it's kind of a good thing. Like the steep seat angle gives us this. So and the long rear center is what we want in terms of balance. So you can have this other thing. Like you're kind of sliding the dials around trying to minimize that there's no massive hole in your bike or there's no massive gap in something it doesn't do very well um yeah kind of the, the pivot between the chain stay and the seat stay um it's something that uh i don't know a few people when they've seen the spy shots are kind of oh that's a bit wayward what's that doing but that with the smaller rocker just helps us to get these super consistent um values of anti-squat and anti-rise
0: and people are bringing that up because it's a it's placed notably high for a kind of horse link layout basically is that the thing that's popping out yeah
1: yeah like if you drew a straight line from the rear axle to the rocker the pivot is basically on that almost on that straight line um so yeah it looks ca- kind of different but um yeah it seems to be working super well so i guess like while i'm staring at it and we're at the back end of the bike there was there was then like a bunch of sounds like the core corpus like geometry we were really happy with you followed through kinematics we identified what we, what we wanted to change and we think we've made some real sort of strides in that um, and then it just became uh, the other things that go into making a bike great. Like, um, so I guess I'll, well, I'll start the back and work forward. One of the I've been I've been mucking about with um, O chains and chainring dampers um, and a bunch of stuff, uh, trying to figure out this. I say figure it out. Like I've got the answer. No, you're about to hear some truth. The the <laughs> the. I yeah, rode a bike extensively with and without an no O-chain, with and without a chain, just trying to muck around with what's going on. Um, and as far as I can tell in things, like it's very rare you actually feel pedal kickback in the bike. I'm sure this will open me up to the whole raft of wrath. But if you take a chain and, well, a full length of a chain, hold it at either end, put your thumbs inside it and just flap it up and down, the force that it requires to hold that chain taut um, you've got inertia in the freewheel, there's a degrees of engagement in the hub um, I th- I'm reasonably convinced what you're feeling is the dynamic response of the chain in that situation so it's something I see the bike industry focusing on static approximations of things, you look at anti-squat, anti-rise leverage rate, they're all geometric considerations, whereas if you went and talked to anybody at a motorbike company that's like key stage one. Like that is about as basic as you get. And they're like, right now, cool, how do we deal with harmonics? How do we deal with dynamics? How do we deal with all of these other factors that come into this thing? So I think one of the really obvious ones to me in the dynamics of a bike is chain flailing around massively. Um, Bikes feel mint without a chain on them because you're taking 400 grams worth of chaos off the back of your bike. Like I think it can't go unrated so I've been trying to come up with different ways to isolate this or like figure out what the the kind of deal is with it and if you if if pedal kickback was a massive thing the onyx hubs with instant engagement you should put one of them on your bike and it feel terrible because you should feel every pedal kickback then because there's no slack in the hub to account for that And it doesn't, like, there's a different hub feeling because it's a heavy hub, it's got this sprag clutch in it, but all of a sudden it's not, I've not ruined my bike for putting this thing on. Conversely, we get, partnered with Hunt, we get hub prototypes of things all the time. We've got things between 3 degrees engagement and 12 degrees engagement. And I, apart from noise, I struggle to tell you the difference between the effect of pedal kickback on those. So, uh... When we started focusing in on this being like a chain flail issue, um, one of the ways that I wanted to control that was to run the chainstay really close to the chainline in your descending gears. So you see it are noticeably on some of the high pivot brands bikes, that chain runs incredibly close to the seat stair, incredibly close to another frame member. And that just doesn't give it one direction in which to flail. So you're taking out quite a lot of the energy of that chain as it flails around.
0: In fact, on the new Trek Slash in the 10 tooth, it actually touches just a little bit.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it'll touch when the bike's maybe at rest. Under sag, it probably isn't. It still touch. does a
0: little bit. It still <laughs> does.
1: Yeah. Oh, sick. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the things coming into these bikes where we've dragged the chain line of the chainstay up. So when you've got a 30 tooth and a 10 tooth at the back, you've got like a nats or a clearance between the two. So with the th- standard 32 that most people are running, you've got a little bit of clearance in that. And the clearance for us opens as the bike sag. Like there's a, there's a limit with the kind of dynamic stuff about how much we can trap that. But yeah, I've been running O-chains on one of the gen one bikes, and I've been trying one on this with and without. Um, and it really has muted the difference in that feeling of having the O-chain on the bike. So I, I'll give OJ chain all the props in the world. That thing feels mint. I love them. Like if I have a park bike down bikes, yeah, I'm chucking one of them on. Um, I pedal quite a lot of miles and I found other fun things with them. Um, but they, the performance, the change in feeling that that gave a bike, it just settles things down when you're not feeling that clattering through your feet. So, yeah, it was something we wanted to bring into the Gen 2 bikes. Um we invested a couple of years ago now in quite a fancy 3d printer that we can print soft rubbers and all this sort of stuff in. So we've been prototyping pretty hard on chainstay protection and seat stay protection to make sure the bikes have got something that really kind of kills the noise in bikes. There's nothing more satisfying than rattling through some and just hearing your tires scream as you ride them off things. Um, So it's mint for us because we've got the facility down in uh, Hastings in East Sussex. Um, We've got uh, a young engineer, Ollie Mant, who's kind of taken ownership of that and is just flying with it. Like, right, we'll we'll keep chipping through these prototypes. It means we're on like the fifth or sixth revision of the chainstay protector. We can get them out to the team riders, right, smack that for a couple of weeks and see what you think about it. Really quick update. So it's kind of exciting for being such a small brand that we've got the capability to but previously if we were doing that in tooling in taiwan several thousand dollars ago you've got to wait three months to get your sample you stick it on and you're like oh that weld relief's in the wrong place or like oh, god damn it like and then it's a fun conversation with the powers that be about can we uh, can we have some more money can we do that again please um so yeah that's been um, already kind of spoken about the chain stay adjustment um yeah all of that is done with just a rear axle and a five mile allen key you can do that out and about while you're on the trail um so i don't know i used to make the annual pilgrimage to the alps every year like oh hell yeah i'd have spent some time right let's do a few few runs of plenty black on short chain stay few run in long mode and you really kind of start building what suits you in things um next one's a bit of a bit of a passion project of mine is bearings um we've gone pretty sizable with the bearings on this new bike um there's only two bearing sizes and there's a bushing in the rear triangle i guess i'll come on to the bushing but um we've got enduro max the full complement bearings the high grease fill labyrinth seal on those all the hardware on the bike has an o-ring seal inside and outside as well so you've got really well sealed high fill high load bearing designed for low degrees of rotation and we've sealed those bearings in there so we're getting really good life off these bearings it's something that's meant when i've been away all summer went on a month-long road trip riding bike. a little humble brag here yeah but it's kind of rare to not have blown bearings up in a bike in the period of time that I've been riding some of these. So yeah, that's been, that's a, a bit of a passion project to mine. It's kind of interesting from a lot of other manufacturers, the small diameters of bearings. Like it, if you don't ride your bike that much, if you don't ride your bike that hard, you won't find a problem with it. Um, it's not that I'm saying I'm the gnarliest guy out there, but like I, I reckon I'm on that dangerous cusp of good enough to break things but not good enough to actually be good at bikes. So <laughs> it ends up being the like, perfect storm of like I can just ruin stuff. So yeah, it's been meant for me having the big bearings on things. It makes everything nice and stiff. Um, lo- loads of little changes have gone into the bike. like All of the hardware now you can tighten with a single Allen key. So on the Gen 1 bikes some of the bolts you needed two allen keys to tighten up from both sides of the frames and I don't know about you but I've been up on the Scottish moors with one allen key before like ah, god damn it. (laughs) So little things like that make these bikes really easy to live with it's all those little learned experiences that we've had through having those bikes for a bunch of time and it's no it's no major problem like I've usually got a mate that'll lend me an allen key but like now I don't, don't have any friends so it's all right um yeah that's been been a big one for it um, straight seat tubes um, with huge dropper insertion is another kind of passion of mine like I'm on the shorter end of things 5'6", five six five seven so being able to get 180 or like I could squeeze maybe a 200 mil drop post in these bikes that's mega like that makes a heap of difference and we keep that all the way through the bikes there's reasonably low seat tube lengths but they're the same sort of length through all the sizes of the bikes so um i won't quote what uh, numbers the dropper post the bikes are going to come with because inevitably i'll get that wrong but um yeah uh that that's mega it just means that you can fit the the biggest drop if you wanted to in that stuff
0: been a good rundown so far a couple of little things to touch on still i don't think we've gotten to the wheel size options for the rear so that'd be a a big one
1: yeah um yeah i didn't know how I glossed over that um so we've got um different riders in our team riding the gen one bikes running different wheel sizes like we weren't too coy about the fact that some of the riders were running a mullet back end and things and i don't know they're factory riders we can try some stuff out with them but we want to make sure whenever we release something to the public or they've got it that like we've tested it really well and it works as we intended so you can jam a 27 wheel in any 29 inch bike and you can ride it but the changes to the handling to us uh, weren't desirable like we don't want to do that so on the new bikes depending on uh, this year we've been working with joe connell and ferg ryan Joe's like six foot tall but rides a medium size frame Um, and Ferg is about five foot nine five foot ten and rides the same size frame. Joe prefers the 29 inch back wheel Ferg prefers the 27 inch back wheel so two riders world-class riders but they just have a different taste in the bike so we wanted to be able to offer that 29 or 27 inch option at the back of the bike it noticeably changes like How the bike, not so much to me, at least how the bike rolls over things, but the eagerness of the bike to tip into corners, like that smaller back wheel, in effect, raises your bottom bracket height. Um, your center, you've got the, the, the roll axis through the bike. Um, which is to say, it's kind of the line between the two axles
0: or crudely. Yeah. Yeah. Roughly.
1: It's a bit, I I try and describe it a bit like balancing, like balancing a broom on your hand. Um, if your bottom bracket is really low it's like having a really long broom handle you've got big movements and it's easy to balance below the roll axis like yeah it's not quite because you center of gravity below the like there's not the points that you're connecting but low bottom bracket crudely is like having a long broom handle on it if you have a super high bottom bracket it's like having a really short broom handle that you're balancing you'll have to move more regularly if you want to keep it balanced but if you want to make a big change you don't have to move your hand as far to get that broom handle to run across the room. so as a shorter rider on the smaller sizes of the bikes i really like having the smaller back wheel on them because it allows me to just rip into corners and not have to like hang off the side of things um so yeah we we wanted to conserve the geometry of the bike and just allow riders to pick between the wheel size to change the handling characteristic that they're getting with that. So we've got an adjustment on the seat stay, two little flip chips on the seat stays that mean you the geometry is conserved. You can run a 27 or a 29 inch back wheel and that's for all frame sizes on the 141 and the 161 we previously did the gen one one six one the smallest size was 27 only and being shorter it's kind of frustrating being penalized like you can't have these features or you have to have a different bike because of this thing um so it was quite important to us like if we're going to offer an adjustment everybody gets it and everybody gets it in the way that it's done well or at least that's how we want this to interact with the bike um yeah pretty stoked on it they're uh, they're really good fun in the little wheel size um, i'm interested to go back up to a 29 inch back wheel some of the steep stuff around here i think i'm gonna chase the insides of my legs a little bit but now we'll see we'll see um so yeah kind of working forward from there um we've got um a removable iscg mount on the bike so you can mount your chain guide or take it off if you don't run one the idea behind that was that I'm, I said before, enough of a hack, I can seem to break things. Um, if you've got tabs on the frame and you bend those tabs and you need thread threading them, like unless you know a fabricator that can weld them in or helicoil them or something, you've written off a frame for two little bolts on the bottom of it. So the idea being if you do some pout on something massively, it's an inexpensive part. You can put a fresh one on and this premium bike that you've got is not damaged by this replaceable thing like um so yeah pretty stoked on that it's keyed in a cool little way so it can't rotate really easy to take on and take off
0: just kind of sandwiched behind the bottom bracket cup
1: yeah 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 well like um i, I kind of assume some of this stuff is common knowledge but obviously you guys don't work for private here. like we'll always do threaded bottom brackets like Uh, yeah I chew through miles on things and uh, good old threaded bottom brackets just tried and tested easy to work on and again we're kind of targeting like privateer riders riders all over the world like everywhere has them it doesn't require fancy tools it's always that kind of tried and tested approach like unless you get something significantly better for it we're not going to do something randomly proprietary that's a pain
0: well, and I guess while we're on the subject of just nice, easy to work on things, external cable routing. Lovely.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it's mega. Like, it's, uh, bleeding brakes is a good example. Like, we'll spec all the haze brakes on these new bikes. They're absolutely sick. But I don't know if you've ever just bled brakes where you can just take it off and hang it from a work.
0: It's so much easier.
1: Oh, isn't it? Like, yeah. no chance of contaminating stuff. You can really clean through the things and, like um it's to take the brakes off this bike it's what like four cable guides you can have the brake off in sub two minutes and you're like oh it's beautiful um mercifully i haven't managed to rip a brake hose out in a while but it's that sort of thing again for like people that are privateers people that are racing like if you're working at the back of your van sat in the like you you don't want to have to be fishing things through frames or having a problem with them so yeah we kind of go down the mantra of like no rattle or rub so they're pretty comprehensive like there's not a big gap between all the external things like we could probably make it easier to take them off but everybody likes a quiet bike like you don't want to be just because it's external we don't want it to be rattling um And it has another benefit of then we don't hand our bikes so we're not we don't have to have an American model or a UK model or you don't end up with your cables running in perverse directions just because you're the other side of the pond. Um, It's yeah uh, it's kind of I don't know being being in the States being in Canada like it's it's messed up what are you doing with your brakes. I don't get it. You, go, you ride with some guys and they're adamant that the brakes are the right way around and then you jump on their motorbike and you're like, what? But you do it. Like Your front brake is in the right hand. So. Defender nation. Go on then. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't really have a good defense of that. I mean, I am. it's what I'm accustomed to because it's the norm. I don't ride motorcycles, so I don't have that countervailing bit of feedback. But I don't know. It just is what it is, I guess.
1: No, it's just me getting salty in my British ways. Um, so, kind of chopping through, I guess, the rest of the frame. Like, so quite quite a visibly different layout. Um, we're pretty happy with the silhouette of things, but it's very much a it's a function over form, but form we don't forget about in things like. If we can make it work better and it would be a little bit less attractive, that's worth it to us. But we're not just trying to make a bulldog chew in a wasp for the sake of it. Like, um, So, yeah, kind of quite happy with the, the profiles of the tubes. Um, yes, yeah, we work towards the front of the bike. We've all, we'll always use like a ZS 4456 headset. You can run offset cups, angle adjust cups if you want different things in them. You can get those bearings everywhere. So, again, kind of minimum faff the easiest thing to kind of work on with the bikes um yeah yeah kind of the the rest of the bike's pretty done. we've um we've gone to town as well with the kind of testing and the longevity of these bikes um so yeah it kind of started off with a bit of my passion project about bearings and long life in those things but I've had a lot of bikes over the years and they don't tend to last more than a season without being significantly tired or needing something major doing to them. Um, and actually, when you look at the designs of lots of bikes there, we, we, we're still, at the time of recording, they're still selling our GM1 bikes. Like, it's still a current bike, it's still a great bike, like coming into the new i probably shouldn't undersell the news but like, coming into the new bikes like the geometry is not that different so if you're stoked on your gen one bike yeah keep riding it don't like but the changes that we've made will really appeal to i think a lot of people like to me there this is a bike i'm absolutely frothing to ride um but the intention of that longevity uh, in the bearings we kind of wanted to follow through the whole process so kind of started from scratch we'll uh, again uh, probably gonna misquote myself but we currently offer a five-year warranty on the bikes and my intention coming into the design of these bikes was the bikes will last five years we're not doing that statistical calculation on most people sell their bike after a year and a half and we'll actually only have to cover this percentage warranty that somewhat seems cynical in the approach of it so yeah kind of started from like just building the fatigue models out looking at some of the suspension data that we've got like polling people about how much they ride building all this stuff up so it's nothing terribly proprietary in terms of the tests that we actually do to the frames it's just the loads and cycles are higher and longer than you would expect for almost any of these bikes so i've had my gen 2 bike i got the first prototype in november and i've done if you include the bike park laps, probably about 180,000 metres are descending on that frame. Um, absolutely no problem. And I've, I don't know, I've misbehaved on that quite a bit. We've had our pro riders doing a similar sorts of things. Um, but we, for example, it was highlighted in one of the fatigue tests that there was an issue that we could do better in. Like we didn't meet our own incredibly high standard for will this actually last five years of use and abuse. So at no small expense, we've reprofiled the down tube and the top tube to make sure that we are where we need to be. So that design life in the bikes, like these, are bikes that are designed to for you to own and to last that period of time. Like we really have kind of gone full to the hilt with the testing of these. The oh, as an example, we do. It's the equivalent of about 140-kilo rider bottoming the bike out a million times. So, like, good luck if you snap one. Like, I'll, I'll see you in hospital. Like,
0: And, yeah, to, to underline it, that was 140 kilo, not 140 pounds.
1: Oh, oh yeah, 140. What's that in uh, freedom units? 200, 300 and something. A little pounds. over 300, yeah, if I'm doing the math right. That's a that's a big unit. Right. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know, like, warranties are great on things, but it doesn't mean that you don't have the issue in the first place and it hasn't spoiled your day. And, like, I don't know who it was, I'll steal this from, but it's that mindset of no-missed rides. Like, the whole having to use a single allen key to tighten every bolt. Right, well, with the multi-tool that's probably strapped to your bike anyway, you can fix anything on this bike. Like, we'll uh it's the same sort of thing like it's great if you have a great warranty for your product and you can get a new one if you break it but it doesn't mean if you're on a road trip on holiday you're not stuck without a bike and looking at a very expensive rental bill to get that sorted um we put a few other things sort of nips and tucks like the kind of standard tool mount under the top tube now it's really nice to just have those tool mounts on there um yeah stop riding with things in your pockets it's kind of grim when people get punctured by things Um, and then we've got full clearance for probably a litre water bottle on all the frame sizes so that was something that by having this slightly more swoopy frame um it gives us that extra clearance um so yeah like i say all of these features are shared between the 141 and the 161 um the it was something we were talking about earlier about how you kind of pick between the travel of the yeah. bike. Mm. Um, and I think there's a perhaps a, a misplaced sense of value in the travel number of a bike. Um, if I say to somebody a trail bike, almost immediately it's five inches. Like if I say an enduro bike, it's 160 mil to 170 mil. Like, we think about the intended use of our bike based on the length of travel that that bike has. And I think there's a lot more that goes into that. Um, like, yeah, I, I don't know how else to, to think of an analogy for this. But the, the reason I would pick between these two bikes is not because I want a trailer in duro bike. It's I want to maximize the fun I'm going to have on the trails that I regularly ride. Like, I would happily ride the 140mm bike in the bike park all season long. It's mint, like, these bikes truck. But it's more lively, because I'm shorter, like we talked about with should travel be proportional to your leg length in things, I can ride the 140mm bike more actively than I can ride the 160mm bike. So if I'm not regularly feeling like, oh, I need a bit of extra cushion here, the one forty mil bike is the one that I go for. I don't tend to like trails where it's just blunderbussing your way down super rough stuff. Um, so yeah that trail that that designation of bike by travel number, I I think we mentioned the the Darko bike. Uh sorry the Chromag Darko. Like it's not useful a lot of the time, but it requires a lot more nuance to describe the intended use of a bike rather than just saying it's this um so like r141 like it has less suspension so if you ride it as hard you're likely to bottom that bike out more often the understanding is that if a bike has less suspension it should be lighter weight but what like actually if you do the strength or follow the strength analysis through and you're intending on riding that thing hard the 140 mil bike kind of needs to be stronger than the 160 mil bike because you're going to hit the bottom out condition more often and then you're going to fatigue the frame because that's where the stress rise happens as soon as you've not got that element of compliance um so yeah i kind of the it is it it, it be an interesting one coming into this that both of the bikes really the difference in the weight between the bikes is going to be what's specced on them but i'd love to have that conversation with people about like the intended use of these bikes like don't buy the travel based on what you think you're going to use it for like our 140 mil bike to me is as capable as most 160 mil bikes our 160 mil bike will give a lot of people's downhill bikes a run for their money so like don't don't be kind of put off the short of travel thinking you need these big things that's another point to note as well like we will we'll sell all the 161s at 100 well depending on the frame size because we have different length back ends the exact travel number is not 161 oh you've got us well done um on a p3 it's very very close um but with the float x in particular that we'll launch these bikes in production with um, it's very easy to take the travel spacer out of the shock. Um, we use a 180, sorry, 205 by 60mm stroke on the 161. If you take the 5 mils worth of spacer out on that shock, you get uh, close to 174mm of travel in a P3. So we've tested the bike to run with 190mm triple crowns. Some brands triple crowns axle to crown measurement is the same at 200mm as other brands is at 190 so you can pretty much make yourself a downhill bike off one of the 161s like they really are a bike built for not mucking about on they're really good fun Um, yeah yeah i'm I'm pretty jazzed like it's been three years my life been poured into these things you sweat the details on the small stuff and I was saying to you earlier about a lot of engineering things it's easy to take for granted that like of course it should be that way but we, when we manufacture the frames we will CNC all the bearing seats into the frames after we've been through heat treatment so as you weld the frame up it distorts T4 normalises so it softens everything so it relieves that stress T6 stiffens it all up again but that's where you see frames walk and wander. So we'll align in T4, like physically twist the frame back to the shape it should be, quench it in T6 then, and then we'll CNC the frame. And it's no small feat putting the whole front triangle of a bike in a CNC machine and being able to turn it over and do the same thing. But it means the alignment in these bikes is bob on. All of the things that we've put into it, like, God, God, I can talk to the cows coming in. Um, While we're on alignment and things like, it's worth mentioning the kind of forged one-piece rockers that we use on the bikes. Um, Stop me if we're sucking eggs now, but um, but we have a love of CNC in the bike industry. It looks cool, don't get me wrong. But metal has grain in it like wood does. This is very oversimplified, but bear with me. If you take a piece of wood and you routed through that piece of wood, you're going to cut through the grain structure in the wood. And metals typically fail at that grain boundary because there's a discontinuity. the material is not homogeneous, it's not perfectly uniform. Any change in that material density creates a stress riser. That's the initiation of a crack, crack propagation, something breaks. So if we CNC our rockers, what we're doing is taking, say, a piece of pine that's got a very open structure and chopping holes in that and hoping it doesn't crack. That's not to say that you can't still make great products like that, but to us at least, the better way to do it is to forge the rockers before we CNC them. Forging literally is just crushing it in a 20, 30 ton press to form the shape. So all of our rockers are one piece forged. There's probably five or six different forge tools that it takes to make that shape. Um, each forge tool is in the region of 300, 400 kilos of steel. So like, it's a lot of effort that goes into being able to forge that in one piece. But the joy of forging it is that it hammers that grain structure closer together. You turn your pine into mahogany. So even though the underlying material is the same, you've when you're chopping the bearing seats out of them, you're cutting through hundreds of layers of the grain of the metal rather than cutting through 20 or 30. So w- along with the sort of CNC in the frames after we weld them together and we forge the rockers and then we CNC those, like the alignment, the manufacturing quality in these bikes has been uh, a, 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 a I don't want to say like a marked improvement, but we've really considered like not only m- make the right thing, make it really well. Good things well made is really important. Like, But a lot of the time it's kind of very difficult to claim any credit for like, yeah, damn straight, my $1,000 mountain bike frame. Like it should be perfectly straight and it should be well made. But a lot goes into that when you're mass producing things. Like it's actually not as easy as you might think to get... Five hundred frames at a time straight, like. Um, so yeah, all, all those little nips and tucks has been. God, oh, I could keep going. One of the other ones has been conscious of in recent years in some bike frame designs is what I'll call convergent mud traps. <laughs> so you end up with, say, between the back of the seat post and the swing arm, a V shape. Um, and as the suspension compresses the v goes to parallel sided and then back to a v and if you've ever been inside a gravel quarry that's how they crush rocks like that is a rock crushing machine um, so you can end up writing frames off you can end up with really horrible noises coming from bikes or bikes not able to hit full travel because there's some stuck in there was really conscious with the Gen 2 bikes that every gap on the bike is divergent. So it's an upside down V, a bad N. So yeah. as it, uh, it as the suspension compresses, it gets to be a bigger gap and it just opens its guts and drops out. So even where we have like minimum a six mil clearance, there's a lot of testing been done on water ingress and spray and clearance on things, six mil is a lovely number. Six mil gaps basically everywhere, and divergent mud traps in all of these things. So, like, grew up in the UK, plodding bikes through some really lovely conditions. Like, it's those little things that make a bike easy to live with in my mind. Heaps of mud clearance. Like, yeah, kind of buzzing. Like as I talk through it, David, I think I've made a good bike. You know, like <laughs> 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 even if I say so myself.
0: I think you've wrapped it up pretty well there. Yeah, just. Been fun getting your rundown on this and getting out for a bit of a ride. Watching you put the bike to work, you were doing
1: some rather good work with it. So this has been a lot of fun. You've got to be able to ride your trails at home reasonably well. <laughs> kind of, yeah, quite happy to to talk about most things. I think it's interesting to see what kind of in like pricks people's ears and what you can dive into because. With some of this, uh, I have a habit of like chatting to Andy Sykes, our marketing guy, and at some point you just see his eyes glaze over, and I was just like, oh, we weren't even into the weeds at this point. Um, so yeah, it's really, really interesting. That. Oh, I guess the one, one last thing to mention. I mentioned the kind of close collaboration that we had with Fox and things. I just wanted to jump into that bit about the bottom-out rubbers that oh, we were talking yeah. about earlier. Um, so yeah, because we've got a high overall progression in the linkage of the bike, um it's meant that we can well, I don't know it's better to explain it the other way around actually I think. If you set a bike at say 30% sag on that the bottom out rubber in the bike occupies at least in the fox shocks like 8 or 9 mil at the end of the stroke on some shocks and up to 14 mil on the end of the stroke of others. So you lose that travel at the start to get to sag point and you're losing 20% of your travel at the end from full travel where you just be sat on an elastomer um so actually your active suspension in the bike is significantly less than the amount of travel that you think you have in the bike a lot of the time those bottom out rubbers like especially in the air shocks we've seen them get bigger and bigger over recent years if you look at some of the Fox coils, some of the Olin's coils, those bottom-out rubbers are over 30% of the travel of the shock to deal with a lack of progressivity and to stop you absolutely hammering the end of that stroke. It's what I was explaining about if you're stronger than the bike, you can just punch it through its suspension. So... By having that leverage built into the bike, it's been really nice because uh, we've been able to take out those bottom-out rubbers and go back to the conventional, like, minimal bottom-out rubber that Fox used to use. So it gives us another 20% of active travel. So even when you're in the deep stroke of these bikes, you you don't feel like you're sat on the ramp up. And the kind of side-by-side benefit of that is that we're... When we're looking at the force at the rear wheel, that's probably a convoluted way to explain it, but we're running air shocks with no volume spacers, without bottom out rubbers in them. So that air spring, now modern air springs are very close to a coil spring. There's little deviation from that. They only start getting wayward when you start really adjusting the volume in the air can.
0: Which is to say, cranking them full of spacers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just pouring oil in there, or however people fancy doing it. Um. So by running that as close to essentially coil as we can, it's not that there isn't a benefit to running a coil, but it means we're getting the, in inverted commas, coil-like performance out of the air shocks that we're having. So again, it's that linear response. We've then got a straight line through the force displacement curve of the shock. You've not added something extra complicated to this bike to do it. So it's been fox have been super supportive and really kind of engage with us in like yeah give it a go see if it works um so we've settled on tunes now for production um but we're pretty committed to not running those bottom out rubbers like it i I haven't once really slapped bottom out and had a habit of bending shock bolts on pretty much everything else i've ridden so it's been been mint yeah yeah no we've thought about basically i say the whole package but a lot of work has gone into these i really hope really hope people are as stoked on them as i am
0: yeah um it's certainly just you know hearing you go through it and i'm sure we could keep going for a whole lot longer here did earlier today but that's just been a really interesting kind of deep dive into what it what's gone into these and you know the consideration that you've put into some of the finer points and it's just very interesting to get to hear about all that so thanks for taking us oh through yeah it.
1: thanks for having us i'll uh, talk the back legs off a donkey anytime so i'm not calling you a donkey david <laughs> when i say that but um yeah spot on <laughs> yeah looking forward to uh, to sort of seeing him get out there kind of yeah spent most of my life doing r&d stuff so it'll be exciting to uh get the consumer product out there i'm yeah pretty big fan of wheelies though so if i see you out and about on one of these gen 2 bikes and you pop a little wheelie i'm gonna be screaming at you
0: perfect well yeah cool to see these getting out there and uh i'm looking forward to getting on when the time comes in a bit here so tell then it's
1: been great yeah thanks for your time Chris. Today. all
0: right that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas and as always we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in your preferred podcast player to keep the show going and growing I'd also like to say thanks to Dana for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.